ministry of the Word of God as we turn to John's Gospel. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word from John in the ninth chapter. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we would ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, a foolishness to men and a stumbling block to many. But yet you have chosen the weakness of man, the weakness of the preaching of your word, that you would have all glory and honor. Even as we've heard from Isaiah, that you go forth not with armies of men, but with your own strength and power, and you put down the wicked. Father, we pray that by your word and spirit, that mighty sword of our God, that you would come and accomplish your will and way within us, that Christ would have the preeminence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we leave chapter 8 behind and move on into chapter 9, we're entering into a new section in John's Gospel. Let me remind you, we begin with the prologue in chapter 1. The first 18 verses is counted as a prologue, setting out what John is doing. That was then followed by the section where John tells of Jesus' witness and a witness to and the gathering of his disciples, John chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 4. And then chapter 5 through 8, we've just finished covering a period of conflict and confrontation with and by the religious leaders of Israel. We have noted that these men were men without faith. They had no faith in God, no faith in Christ. As we step forward into chapter 9, we're entering a section where John records Jesus' ministry to those who believe as a result of their encounters with Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Son of the living God. This section will run through chapter 11, and it is also marked by Jesus' advancement. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He's moving toward the cross. Uh, Early in John's Gospel, we will find ourselves in that final week leading up to his crucifixion. Now, John intentionally did not tie the events of this chapter to a particular place or time. Notice is now, as Jesus passed by, told where he's at. You know, commentators, they say, well, he's leaving the temple. That may be. He could have been leaving the temple. They're saying it's the same day as what's just happened before. That could be. But we don't know. John is particularly not specific. He does not tie it to that time because he's focused on something else. It should be noted that the name of the man who is healed is not given either. Now, we would think from you know, a writing standpoint, you could just say, you know, and Bill... Jesus healed, but he's referred continually, the man who was born by, the man who was by the Jesus healed. And it takes more time, but the Spirit has inspired John that we're not told the name of this man. These realities should make it clear that the focus is on something else. Or shall we say, the focus is on someone else. John wants us to see Jesus and what Jesus did in opening the eyes of the blind man. 
The previous chapters have provided numerous examples of spiritual blindness. We've seen it most clearly in the religious leaders, the Pharisees, or the Jews, as John sometimes calls them. You can see this spiritual blindness. Uh, Though they know the scriptures, they do not see what they are saying. They don't see how they set Christ before us. For They're all about him, and they're blind to that. Now, in typical pattern, Jesus will perform a miracle that is connected with the spiritual realities of the people. The people are spiritually blind. The people of our generation, the people that live around us, we who are in Christ, we're once apart from Christ, and we had this spiritual blindness. We could not see, but that God would act, that God would open our eyes. Sinful men, women, boys, and girls need Jesus to take away spiritual blindness so that they can see Jesus as he is and for who he is, as John is setting him forth in his gospel, that he is the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior of the world. We'll keep this in mind as we make our way through the chapter. This morning, we're going to focus on something that the disciples ask. In verse 2, they, or verse, yeah, verse 2, the disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see the nature of the question. He's blind. There's got to be a reason behind it. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. From this, we want to consider, why is there suffering? Blindness certainly is suffering, something very difficult to live with, whether you're born with it and it's your normal way of living or something that comes upon you as it does with others through an accident or some progression of disease. But we want to consider more generally, why do people suffer? All over the globe right now, multitude millions are suffering. We could even say that all of humanity is suffering, even under the affliction of sin. Suffering has touched us all, and we want to ask some important questions about this topic. We're going to use four main headings, common questions and errors about suffering, and why do we suffer? We'll move to that, and then how do we respond to suffering, and finally considering shining light through suffering. So begin with common question and errors about suffering. Jesus is going somewhere. As I said, John doesn't say where, but as he's going, he, he sees And he sees a man blind from birth. Uh, This fact becomes clear later on as there's the encounter with the Pharisees, the questions are asked, his parents are called, and it becomes clear. But John, knowing the facts, tells us up front that this man was blind. It's not that just he was sitting there or begging, wearing a sign, saying, hey, I was born blind from birth. Uh, That's not the case. But John tells us that up front. He gives us that piece of information that he makes clear how they knew it later on. But this is helpful. Blindness. Blindness from birth. Now again, remember, this is a physical reality, but it points to a spiritual reality. Every single one of us, spiritually, we're blind from birth. We're born dead in our trespasses and sin, and we have a spiritual blindness and a dullness and inability to comprehend the things of God. So the disciples note the blind man, even as Jesus asked, and they ask an important question. Why? Who sinned, this man or his parents? We step back from this particular, in the particular question, we want to pursue the question, this question of suffering. Cancer, heart disease, birth defects, blindness, deafness, being mute, eczema, acne, backaches, I can relate to that, tooth decay, 
fighting, divorce, being fired from a job, house fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes. We hear about them. They're, all these things are in the news. Some of them are very close. We all experience suffering. You know, the suffering of age, the advancement of age, the deterioration of the body. And we're, we want to ask the question, we want to answer the question, why do we suffer? Well, there's many errors in answering this question. Pagan religions answer the question with there. Eastern religions have made their way into our country. You, you encounter this. Have you heard the word karma? I hope you don't use the word karma, but we're surrounded. I, I see it on the news, social media, people talking. Karma is the idea that uh, karma is responsible for when things happen, good or bad. Eastern religions, by and large, believe that we all had a previous life and that we're incarnate. And and if we're suffering stuff in this life, well, it's because we did something bad in the other life. And and that idea, this wrong idea, this error, has taken on the sense also that somebody does something bad last week and then, boom, something bad happens to them this week. Or maybe it's even the same day. That's the worldview of many in our day. And it's wrong. It's an error. The truth revealed in God's word is that we only live one life and then we die. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, judgment comes upon our death. It's not in this, uh, the consequence of another life. Another heir that was amongst the Jews in Jesus' day, uh, they were taught that some children sin in the womb. And therefore, when they're born, they have birth defects. That was the common explanation of some of the rabbis of Jesus' day. And that seems to lie behind the question of the disciples. Whose sin? This man's born birth, born blind from birth. He, did, he must have sinned in the womb. You can see how the worldview around us can affect us. And so they ask this question. Well, this is an error that Jesus also quickly corrects. Yet another error is the error that believes that suffering is the result of parents' sin, or perhaps even relatives of ancient generations. That idea is not far from the Word of God. You remember the second commandment has a judgment connected to it, that if we break the second commandment, make graven images, worship God in a false way, God says He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those that hate me. God accounts that false worship and worshiping him in the wrong way is hatred towards him, and he will judge people for that. Now, there's a natural result of parents' sins. Indeed, angry and abusive parents tend to raise up children who will be angry and abusive parents. In that sense, the sins of the parents are visited upon the children. Just as you know, lying parents, greedy parents, drug-abusing, alcohol-abusing parents, they tend to pass on those things to the next generation. Likewise, a child can be born with AIDS or fetal alcohol syndrome or some other severe suffering due to the sinful habits of their parents. And children do suffer as a consequence of what their parents have done. But this does not mean that the next generation is doomed to repeat the sins of their fathers. 
and that their suffering necessarily uh, is, has to be passed along. God, God, our God is gracious and strong to save. Uh, perhaps some of you have come out of some situations like that. God is able to overcome and to conquer and in Christ Jesus to uh, give you a new heart and direct you on a new course of living and a strength to live for his glory that these things do not need to be passed on. It's an error then to think that God punishes children for the sins of their parents. God is explicit about that when he speaks through Ezekiel in chapter 18 and verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. That soul, that sin, who, that soul whose sin shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor shall the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. God says, I judge according to each man's deeds. The fourth error that is all too frequent is to say that every time someone suffers, it's the wrath of God for some person's sin they've committed, that we sin and then there's the wrath of God follows. Not all suffering. Now, indeed, that is the reality that we, there are consequences for our sin. But right now what I'm talking about is that to see somebody suffering and say, well, they must have committed a great sin. This was the error of Job's, I'm putting this in quotes, Job's friends, that they thought Job must have done some great and grievous and heinous sin. And so much of what they had to say is along those lines. Basically, you could sum up their counsel, Job, you have done something to bring this calamity upon yourself. Come on, Job, out with it. Confess it. Acknowledge it. What is it that you've done? Those men represent an evil view of God. Seeing him as sitting up in heaven, just waiting for someone to sin so he can strike them down. And we, if we hold to this thinking, then we can become hypercritical of others. We sit over there all smug and look at what's happening in their life, the calamity, the suffering they experience. Say, boy, they must be a terrible sinner. God's really letting them have it. That's a wrong view of God and his justice. We can indeed be engaged in gloating over other suffering and thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. The truth is far from that. God is long-suffering and merciful. Do we not know that? You know, we all know many of our sins. There's many of our sins we don't know, but we know our sins. And there are times when, when we, if we had that kind of worldview, would think, well, God should just pinch our heads off because of what we've done. But God is merciful and long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish. And it is the mercy of God, the long-suffering of God, that should bring us to repentance. Some application. Let us be slow to pass judgment on others. Honestly, we rarely know why others suffer. Even as we rarely know why we suffer. It's one of the great cries of our soul when we're suffering. Oh, God, what is it? You hear it from David in the Psalms. Lord, search me and try me. If there's any unclean thing, you see David where he's mindful of sin and he confesses it, but the suffering persists. And he cries out, God, be merciful. God, deliver me. Many times we don't know what the Lord is doing. His ways are past finding out. When you think of Job, Job and his friends, neither, none of them had those first two chapters that we have as to what the backdrop in the heavenly places was. It's just unfolding on the earth, even as our lives are. We don't know about these conversations. We don't know what God is doing. By and large, the book of Job 
is to teach us and remind us that God's God and we're not. He's sovereign. And he does according to his holy will. Let his name be praised and let us yield to him. Certainly true that we might be able to look at our own suffering, our own suffering, and sometimes draw proper conclusions as to why we're suffering. We made a bad choice. Consequences follow. You had too much to drink and you got in the car and you hit the road. And then you're in an accident. You can kind of connect those dots. But what about when a drunk goes out on the road and hits a family member's teenage daughter and she's killed? Was it something she did? Something that happened in that family? See, we don't know the ways of God. Indeed, the scripture teaches that we sow and we reap. And if we've sown to the wind, we can expect to reap the whirlwind. But more often than not, we will suffer and not know why we suffer. That we should learn to say, God's God. And I'll wait on the Lord. I will rest in him. So I want to consider, secondly, then why do we suffer? I want to give you a number of reasons why we suffer. Are we to conclude that we cannot know why we suffer? Are we just to say, well, you know, there's all these reasons that people give and they're not valid. Are we just say, well, we don't know why we suffer? Absolutely not. We do know. The word of God reveals many things. Remember, before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, Eden God had pronounced that all of creation... Through the vastness of the universe and all around the globe, it was all very good. There was no suffering. In the beginning, there was no suffering. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? No suffering. But that's the way it was. All was good. But then Adam rebelled against God and sinned. What does the scripture teach us? Paul puts it this way. The wages of sin is death. The command was given to Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam brought the justice of God on himself and all mankind because he represented us and we all proceed from him. He's our federal head standing before God as the first man, the first Adam. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Death is the worst form of suffering. Is it not death is the worst form of suffering? It's not the way it's supposed to be. I hope you never stood beside a casket of someone the Lord has taken from this world to the next and say, oh, he looks so natural. No, death is not natural. It's common to all mankind, but it's not natural. God has created us to live forever, and indeed we will live forever in one place or the other. We'll all have an eternal address. Death is the just penalty of a holy God for sin. That's where we die. Well, furthermore, we read in Genesis 3.17 that God cursed the ground for Adam's sake. God put a curse on the ground. This world in which we live is cursed. He says, in toil you shall eat of the earth. The ground shall bring forth thorns and thistles. In the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. Finally, in the ground that you were taken from, to the ground you'll return. That's the consequence of sin. Do you hear the suffering in there? Thorns, thistles, sweat in your labors, and ultimately death because Adam sinned. That is the first and the chief, the capital reason of all. Why is there suffering? Because of sin. And so we could say there's a justice in that. But it's not left at that. When the disciples asked Jesus who sinned, Jesus might have just said, Adam sinned. 
And that's why this man's blind. That would be true. But there's more to it than that. You may well remember from Romans 5, Paul's words, through one man sin entered the world in death, through sin. If Adam had not sinned, then we would know nothing of disease and pestilence and plague. We wouldn't know about suffering. These would not be words that have ever entered into man's language. It's kind of hard to fathom, isn't it? Because since the beginning it's been so. In addition to this broad and general truth that affects us all, there are other reasons for suffering. Our loving Heavenly Father uses suffering with His children to correct us when we are wayward. Just as a a loving parent will discipline a son whom he loves when he is going into wrong correction to teach him to walk in the right way. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord loves, for whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges. That's quite a word. That's suffering. He scourges every son whom he receives. So suffering from the hand of God teaches us that sin is wrong. Sin is not a good way to walk and that there are consequences from it. And, and also to point us to the grace of God shown forth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save them from our suffering. We will suffer here below, but ultimately Jesus will deliver us from the effects of the fall, the curse for sin and death. And he'll bring us home to glory where there will be no more suffering Suffering teaches us that sin is wrong and that by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should hate sin. Suffering teaches us to hate our sin. If there was not suffering from our sin, uh, we could be comfortable with it. And sometimes God leaves us in sin. You look at our confession of faith, chapter 5, that's the paragraph 5. That's what it talks about. That in the providence of God, God oftentimes will leave us to suffering, to chasten us for, further sin, for uh, former sins, uh, to teach us our weakness that we would further depend upon Christ. God does bring suffering on us for sin. Suffering teaches us to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, even as Jesus says in John 15, Abide in me, even as the branch abides in the vine. Abide in me, then you will bear good fruit. But apart from me, you can do no good thing. The reality is, if we didn't suffer, we'd become cocky and think that we could go it alone, that we could make our way through this life without the Lord Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. Suffering reminds us of our dependence. Suffering and the rod of correction bring us to and keep us close to the Good Shepherd. Suffering is also constructive. It is used by God to instruct us in the way of righteousness, to wean us off from loving this world. One of the plagues that's in our culture today is people who lost sight of heaven. There's so many that they're not thinking of heaven. They, they think of retirement. If I can just finish my job, put enough in the bank, and then I can retire. And I can do this and this and this. And they think of retirement. That's heaven. That's the heaven. I'm not looking for anything after this world. I want to live those last few years, as many as may be, in comforts and pleasures and so forth. But indeed, oftentimes those years are accompanied by suffering. Suffering is to teach us not to love the world or the things of this world. Suffering should lead us to long for heaven, to long to see our blessed Redeemer who has saved us. Suffering is also the Father's hammer and the anvil as well as the fire of the forge. 
When the blacksmith wants to forge a sword of great strength, that'll be hard, that it can be sharpened and it'll hold an edge, a sword that'll be able to deal with his foes, the blacksmith must heat and hammer and heat and hammer and heat and hammer to forge such steel. Even so, God uses suffering in the life of his children to prepare us for greater usefulness in the work of his kingdom, for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Perhaps you've read a biography of of a godly saint who went off to great places and did great things. They didn't just get up one day and walk out of the door and head off to do those things. God was at work to prepare them for that which he appointed for them. He didn't just snatch them out of their living room and cast them into the dark corners of society. If you read those stories, you will find that their lives, even in their going, are shaped and marked by suffering. God uses suffering to shape and mature us in the Lord, even as he was doing in the life of Job. And so it is that James writes, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect word, work that you may be, and I'm tra- changing the word perfect because we think of perfection, what James means by the word perfect there is mature, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Wow, through trials, through suffering, through afflictions, God uses them in our life, in the life of believers. We illustrate that. Many of you are familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, who was a young girl, I think just out of high school or thereabouts, she was injured when she dove into a lake head first and broke her neck. She was a quadriplegic from that point on. She leads an international ministry to serve those forgotten or cast off by society, those with physical limitations and deficiencies. She didn't just launch into that ministry right out of high school. God, through suffering, prepared Johnny for that work. And if you know her life, she's continued to suffer. Every day is filled with suffering for Johnny. Pain, ever-present pain, constantly the inability to do the things that we take for granted. She just recently went through an experience of breast cancer, that might have taken a life further suffering, added to the suffering she's always endured, already endured. And I tell you, if you read her or you listen to her, you will hear a sweet saint speak of things that we all should long to know. God has worked in her through suffering to minister to so many the precious truths of God and intimacy with God, what it is to walk with God. She personifies so many of the things that I've been talking about that she's learned to depend upon the Lord and to live in the Lord, to abide in Christ, to enjoy the beauty, the fellowship, and the intimacy that is in Christ. And God is using her to share those things with others. This is the way of our God. Johnny Erickson taught her would not be who she is apart from God's sovereign appointment of suffering in her life. Another suffering found in First Corinthians, yes, in First Corinthians one three, Second Corinthians one three. Some of you may be familiar with it. Why do we suffer? It's so that we can comfort others in their suffering. Listen to the words of Paul, Second Corinthians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us. Listen for the words of suffering. Who comforts us in our tribulation? that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective and enduring 
the same sufferings which we also suffered. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so you will be partakers of the consolations. God appoints suffering for us that we might then help others to come alongside. It's one thing to say, I sympathize with you. I'm sad for you. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. All those things we should do. But there's sometimes when we're suffering, God appoints somebody to come alongside and say, I've been where you're at. I know exactly what you're talking about. I had a fellow pastor friend of mine that suffers deep, deep seasons of depression. And he was experiencing that a few years ago. And he shared it with our group of pastors. And I care for him deeply. And it burdened my heart. And I prayed for him. And I made myself available day or night. If he was overwhelmed, call me anytime. One of the other brothers was able to say, Brother, I know exactly what you're talking about. I have been there. I have walked through that. And God used that man as well as me, but he used that man as a man who in his suffering knew the consolation of God and when he was able to share that. Brothers and sisters, let us understand that nothing is wasted when we live under the king. He has his purposes. There are many other reasons, and I would encourage you to go home and read chapter 5 of our confession. It's of providence, the providence of God. We've looked at just some of these here. Again, in verse 3, then Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. It's a wrong answer, disciples. Not his sin, not his parents' sin. He was born blind, that the works of God should be revealed in him. Very simply put, he was born blind for the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was uniquely prepared and placed. Wherever this place was that Jesus passed by, he was uniquely prepared. Even that his being there was the providence of God. That God would glorify himself. Man born blind was for our benefit. The Spirit inspired John to write this. We have this account that this happened, that we would learn, that we would profit, that we would benefit from it, that we would pause and consider the question of the disciples. Who sinned? And that we would look farther wide in the scriptures to realize that there's all kinds of reasons why people suffer. In summary, we ask the question, why do we suffer? We suffer because first, Adam sinned. He ate and he died and we all died in him. Secondly, because of the curse upon all of creation. Thirdly, suffering is an instrument in the lives of all God's children to correct us. Fourthly, God uses suffering to teach us to walk close and abide in Christ. Fifthly, to wean us off from loving the world and lead us, lead us to look to Christ alone and to look for Christ's return. Sixthly, God uses it to mature and perfect his people. Seventhly, ultimately, through his purposes, it is for God's glory. Are you suffering today? I think we all could say, yeah, in, in some shape or form, we suffer. We suffer in that we dwell in a body of flesh that has the effects of the fall of Adam. The curse of Adam is on us. And so we experience these things. But in all these things, God is at work for his glory. Let us learn, um, as Corey Ten Boom, some of you will know who that is, that suffered through the Nazi occupation of Germany and spent many years in the concentration camp. She wrote a book, and I'm drawing from that title, Let Us Learn Like Corey Ten Boom, Not to Wrestle with God, What God Has Appointed, 
but to nestle in God as he carries out his plans and purposes. Which brings us to our third point. How do we respond to suffering? What is the right way to respond? How do we help others when we suffer? How are we to approach our own suffering? Well, verse 4, we're told, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus' time on earth was limited. Time was coming when his work below would be completed and it would ascend to the right hand of the Father once more. My friends, that's true for us too. Our time here is limited. And even as Jesus must work the works of him who sent me, God would have us do the works that Christ has appointed for us to do. We are his people. Remember the church. We're the body of Christ. He is the head. We are Christ on the earth. Our union with him is complete and full, and he has work for us to do as he continues his work here on the earth. Jesus healed the blind man, and in so doing, he brought glory to his Father. We respond to suffering. We should respond to suffering in a way that we glorify God, that we can serve others when they are suffering. My friends, we can't take clay and apply it to eyes as Jesus did that day, but we can pray, we can sit at the bedside, we can visit those in prison, those who are naked, we can clothe them, we can make a meal, we can do laundry, we can clean a house, we can give a cool cup of water and a thousand other works of service to those who are suffering. And Jesus said that the last day he will separate all humanity, he will put the goats on his left hand and the sheep on his right hand, and he will say to the sheep on his right hand, come and enter in to the rest prepared for you by my Father. Come, enter into the kingdom. Why? Jesus said, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Those are all forms of suffering. And Jesus is saying, we as his people, we serve those who are suffering. There are works for us to do while it is yet day. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians, that while it is day before the night comes, we need to be diligent and obedient to the will of the Father. That's how we respond to suffering. We serve one another, but in our own lives, we remember God is at work in it. Christ is working in us, working out his will in us, that we should become more conformed to the image of his Son. When we suffer in Christ, in the strength of Christ, can we say we suffer well? We should suffer well, and when we do so, we are doing works to glorify the Father. Like Jesus, we must be about our Father's business. Time is short. There's an urgency. Things that should be done that matter. You think about our day-to-day lives. It's our, our, inclusive, me too. We distract ourselves with so many things that are unimportant. You hear about you know, the suffering and caring for the suffering. Suffering's all around us. But we're often blind to it because we're so busy with other things. We say, I don't have time to help those who are suffering. We're bound up social media, games, screen time, entertaining ourselves, concerned about our image, overwhelmed with a desire to promote our own glory. We're called to do the works. What if Jesus said, I don't have time for this blind man? I'm on a purpose. No, he stopped and he cared for this blind man and it resulted in Quite an account, as we will see as we move forward. Ultimately, we'll find that he brings this man to himself in his grace and mercy, rescuing him from sin and iniquity, that he should too be brought into the kingdom. 
bear witness to testimony to the glory of God. The night's coming. We can no longer work. Going back to James again. He says to us, he's writing to the church, for what is your life? What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Our life is brief. We work while it is yet day. Jesus saves sinners. And that salvation that he brings changes our eternal salvation. But the salvation that Jesus purchased with his blood is so much more than just giving us a new eternal address. Jesus saves us to commune and to fellowship with God. What we have seen as John's gospel is Jesus is ever about the Father's will. He's doing what he sees his Father doing. He's speaking what he hears his Father saying. He is yielded wholly, completely to the Father. He's came to restore that which is what Adam lost and he would have us to walk in like manner. That we should do the works of him who has sent us while it is yet day. For the night is coming when we can work no more. John 17, we've not come to it, but I refer to it regularly because it's a verse worth knowing. Verse 3, Jesus tells us what eternal life is. Back in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have what? everlasting life. In John three seventeen three, Jesus says, what is eternal life? It's to know the Father. And knowing the Father is doing the will of the Father, walking in obedience to the Father. That's what Jesus did the whole time he was on the earth. And he has redeemed us. He set us free from sin. And he's filled us with his spirit. He's empowered us to go and to do likewise, to live for his glory, to do what the Father commands us to do, to walk in obedience before him. And finally, The final point, shining light through suffering. Jesus was mindful that his time was limited. He was drawing near to the cross. And it was for this reason that he came into the world, to go to the cross. Look at verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This harkens back to the previous chapter in verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Are you a Christ follower? Has God redeemed and rescued you? He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. What is it to not walk in darkness? Well, it's to walk in Christ and to do that which Christ has appointed for us. Now, we don't have the ability to lay hands on people and they be healed, but we do have the ability to be God's hands and feet, his eyes, his ears, and mouth, all those things I talked about earlier. And Jesus says that when we do that, we have done it, when we've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, we have done it unto him. And it was for this reason that Jesus came into the world. Jesus is not sitting idly on the throne of his Father. He's making intercession for us. And that's not an intercession just so we say, hey, I I need this, I want that. It's an intercession for us that we should live lives for the glory of God. That as he is at work in us, that we would be lights shining in the world. And how is it that we can be lights shining in the world? Because we do the will of the Father care for those that are suffering and afflicted, that we might manifest the works of God's grace in our lives. Jesus completed his work some 2,000 years ago as far as redemption, but he's still in the work through his church, through you and I in the world today, that we should show forth the light of Christ, that we shall go forth shining light before those who are dead and dying.
that God would use us to give spiritual sight to the blind and hearing to those who are deaf. He sends those he has so marvelously and mercifully saved into the world to work while it is yet day. Remember, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest man should boast. And we are new creatures in Christ to do good works that the Father has prepared for us in advance. We shine lights when we suffer well to the glory of God. And how do we suffer well? In the strength of Christ. Christ who has united us to himself. Christ who has given us the spirit, the comforter, the paraclete, the one who strengthens us. We shine brightest when we walk through sufferings in him. And then in turn when we care for those who are suffering. Certainly there's a call to obedience in this for all who are united to Christ by faith. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We've just heard, he says, I'm the light of the world. But we also know that he said, I'm the light of the world. And he whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness. If you're not walking in darkness, you're walking in the light. You're walking in the light of the Christ to do the will of Christ. You are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Are you hovering under a basket? To the glory of God, be out in the world, shining as the light of the, unto the world, the light of Christ. They do not put a light, a lamp, and put it under the basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Sisters and brothers, go. As you're going, make disciples. Go for Jesus. Go for Jesus goes with you and shine. Bring comfort to those who are suffering with the gospel of peace. How do we gain entrance? In the life of another, we meet them in the midst of their affliction and suffering, and then we point them to Christ. We announce the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came into the world to save sinners, for suffering reminds us of sin and our need of a Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we do bless you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that sufferings are not wasted. But indeed, as with all things, they are according to your appointment to accomplish your will and way in the world, as well as and especially in the hearts of your people. Father, we all suffer. Many are even suffering right now. Lord, give us eyes to see our suffering with the lenses of Scripture, that we might not understand that we might understand them, that we might not chafe under them, but that we may walk in them for your glory and honor. And Lord, we do marvel and wonder that we could be vessels filled with your spirit to go and to minister to those who are suffering. Father, we would also pray that you would help us not to be quick with our tongue when someone's suffering, to assume that we know why they're suffering, that we might be gracious and kind and forbearing, even as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.